Hello, and welcome to Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about the people behind today's science headlines. People just like you working to understand viruses and how they affect you. During the COVID-19 pandemic, we are talking with faculty involved in coronavirus and COVID-19 related research so that you can understand who they are and what they do. I am Larissa Thackeray, and I'm hosting this podcast from America's heartland in St. Louis, Missouri. Today, August 19th, 2020, we have with us Dr. Annie Mayer-Bridwell, an instructor in the Stallings Lab at Washington University School of Medicine. Annie obtained a veterinary degree at Virginia Tech and her PhD in microbiology and immunology from Wake Forest School of Medicine working on influenza virus. She performed screens for drugs that inhibit norovirus and tuberculosis infection, as well as induce the cellular process of autophagy during her postdoctoral training at WashU. She continued some of this work at a startup biotech company in St. Louis before returning to the Stallings lab earlier this year to study host pathogen interactions during TB infection. Hi, Annie. Happy to have you with us today. Tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you become interested in microbiology research? So my interest in microbiology probably goes back to undergrad. Um, where I was studying comparative physiology, and I was also really interested in sociology, but it was during the era of West Nile virus and SARS and all these exciting new zoonotic disease outbreaks. And um, given my interest in comparative physiology, I just thought, you know, the notion of zoonotic disease was fascinating. And from there, my interest in microbiology grew. Um, I ended up going to vet school because I was really interested in clinical application, even though I was interested in research ultimately. Um, and that gave me a really awesome, broad background in microbiology and virology. Can you tell us a little bit more about the steps you took to get where you are in your career today? Yeah, after undergrad, I actually did smallpox vaccine research for two years uh, as a postback with the FDA at NIH. Um, and uh, I also worked at a vet clinic, and then I applied to vet school, went to vet school and really studied, did research over summers, studied epidemiology and herd health. Um, and then after vet school, went straight into a PhD program. Um, I got my PhD at Wake Forest in North Carolina. Uh, I went there because I had a primate center, and it's a really excellent program for veterinarians to pursue PhDs. And I worked on uh, susceptibility to influenza virus over the course of pregnancy um, using African green monkeys as a model system, um, primarily looking at complement response to flu. And then um, after grad school, I went to Skip Virgin's lab at Washington University, where I, I'm still at WashU. Um, and my main project in Skip's lab was working on anti-norovirus compounds and developing screens um, and looking at potential autophagy inducers as well. Um, when Skip left WashU, I joined Christina Stallings' lab to kind of run her drug program. Um, for TB drug development. So it was a big jump from virology to TB, but otherwise things that I was familiar with. And I ran several different collaborations there. Um, one of them was with a local startup called Fimbrion Therapeutics. And a um, little over a year ago, I went to work for Fimbrion full-time, but still in a collaboration with Christina's lab at WashU doing TB drug development. Um, and I am now back at WashU full-time pursuing the academic track, uh, kind of found my passion, and I will be returning to uh, TB work, but on the host pathogen side, leaving the drug world, but 
it was that collaboration with Fimbrian and Christina's lab that led me to COVID work. Can you describe in a little bit more detail your work in the Stallings lab? Yes, yeah, so we were doing, um, like I said, lots of different collaborations for drug development. The, the main one was looking at um, cytochrome inhibitors uh, and doing rational drug design and trying to find drug, as well as trying to find drugs that syner synergize with isoniazid. Um, and mainly working in vitro, but also starting to develop some in vivo models as well for that work. What research are you pursuing right now? Um, I'm really excited to be returning to the world of host pathogen interaction. Um, I think that's truly what I'm passionate about, and I'm excited to be studying that in terms of comorbidity with tuberculosis, um, looking at uh, both diabetes and TB comorbidities, as well as looking at things like effects of sphingolipids and lipid content on TB infection. Um, and I'm thrilled just to be back, you know, pursuing my own science, pursuing things that excite me, and then ultimately working towards opening my own lab. Looking back at your career, what was the most exciting Eureka moment so far? So scientifically, I would say um, during my thesis work during grad school, when I made the discovery that in African green monkeys, they've got dramatically decreased levels of certain kinds of complement late in pregnancy, and that this complement doesn't neutralize flu as well. Um, that was the first time I made kind of a a really cool, distinct discovery from anyone else, and it actually supported my hypothesis, which is bonus. <laughs> it doesn't happen very often. Um, Career-wise, I would actually say while I was working at Fimbrion, um, because it was a fantastic environment. I worked with awesome people. I was doing clinically relevant research. Um, it's like everything was sort of a dream, but I realized how much I miss academia. <laughs> it really, it sort of surprised me, but it also, I had tremendous clarity. On the flip side, what is the most difficult thing you've had to overcome as a scientist, and how did you overcome it? Probably figuring out what I wanted to do and finding the right environment to make that happen. Um, you know, I think we like to believe that science uh, is sort of destined for us, but so much of it is environment and um, really working in the right area and timing. And I think just working through that process, going from grad school um, and you know mentoring changes to postdoc to to my career now, I think that that theme just kind of is everywhere. To follow up on that, if you were to talk to your younger self, what would you want her to know, knowing what you know now? It would be that I didn't have to be perfect. And I mean, there have been times when I planned things so perfectly and thought things through so carefully, and they didn't work out. And then the things that have worked out and been amazing have been things that I've sort of happened into. Um, so I would say, I would tell myself to know what I want and to let that guide me rather than trying to think with my rational brain so hard and figure it out and follow a, a set path. Conversely, if you had a chance to ask your older self, say you in your 60s or 70s, one question, what would it be? I think I would wanna know what I regret not doing um, because it's really hard to have in perspective. You kind of get, you, start, you, get, you forget to see the forest through the trees. Um, and I love what I'm doing now, but I'd love to be able to look back and say, you know, what really mattered to me that I missed out on and, and make space for that too. To follow up on that, life-work balance is a big struggle in general, and especially now during the COVID-19 pandemic. 
what steps do you take to try to maintain balance in your life? Yeah, that's a really good question. And uh, it's one I've been thinking through and having new perspective on uh, because exciting news is I'm pregnant. <laughs> and I found out right at the beginning of COVID. So, oh, wow. Congratulations. So that puts a new angle on everything um, and thinking about what my priorities are going to be and, you know, where does my career fall in that, which has always been extremely important and will continue to be. But I think sort of the same advice I'd give my younger self about thinking about what do I really want and making sure I incorporate that on a daily basis as well as big picture. You know, I want to be making discoveries. I want to be training young people. I want to be spending time with my partner and my family. And I want to be healthy and balanced. So finding ways to maintain habits to work all of that in. Um, it sounds really easy, but it's not. But I think it's absolutely crucial. Do you think that there is more support these days for young investigators who are starting a family? Yeah, it's hard for me to answer if I feel more support because I think as I've moved along in my career, I've gotten better at finding the environment that's going to give that to me. Um, but so, so I do feel more support, yes. But I don't know. I can't speak for what it's like across the board. In terms of the young people that I work with, the, the very junior grad students, some of the undergrads, it seems that they have a much better handle on balance and options and ranges of opportunities than I did as a young person. And I think it's really cool. And I think that um, there's just much more support for them to be who they are. You know, there's not this set path of you must go into academic science as much as there used to be. I think there's less of an image of what you're supposed to be, especially if you're a woman. Um, and I actually see the males embracing that too. And I think that most of the young males I work with have a very open mind about what their roles are going to be as well uh, in their personal and professional lives. And I think it's just amazing progress to see over the last, you know, 15 to 20 years. Turning back to virology, how did you start working on COVID-19 research? So the way it came about uh, was when I was with Fimbrion full-time still, um, and all of this information about chloroquine as a potential treatment came out, we realized that we had several chloroquine-like compounds in our library, in our vast uh, library of compounds that our chemists had developed. And the question came up, you know, while everybody else is kind of on a hiatus and working from home, do we have compounds that we think are strong enough to support pursuing some COVID work? Um, and the reason I was the person who stepped up to do it all is because of my combination of a virology background, which no one else at the company had, but also that I already had BSL-3 access and BSL-3 training. So it was one of those few times in your career where everything that you've been trained to do kind of combines to make you the perfect person to carry something out. Um, so that was really cool and exciting. And I also had a lot of experience developing cell-based screens for drug testing, um, especially for antiviral compounds. So that combination of background just was perfect and proved to be really fruitful for us. Um, and has led to a bunch of other people wanting us to screen compounds for them as well, and this kind of becoming a, a much larger endeavor. Can you describe in a little bit more detail some of the work that you've been doing, some of the assays that you've set up? Yeah, it, the, the assay setup has been a whole lot of troubleshooting. It always takes longer than you think it will, but um, very simple, on the most basic level, we take cells that are permissive to uh, COVID-2 infection, and that show, you know, strong response to the COVID-2 infection in terms of death or pathogenic effect. And uh, we 
developed all of the different variables, you know, how long do we infect, how long do we treat with compounds for, um, how much vehicle do we need in there, and we optimized what concentrations we wanted to be treating at in our, in our basic screen, and uh, how many cells we needed to be using, and it's very simple. We take cells, we add compounds, we infect, and then a couple days later, we look for cell death, and anything that protects from cell death we know is a strong hit. So what are the next steps that you take after this initial screen? So the first thing that we want to do is we've been working with a, a really easy to work with cell line, um, Bureau cells. And so, and those are from African green monkeys. So we want to move these into more relevant cells and we're starting to look at and optimize the assay for human epithelial lung cells. Um, and then, and there have been shown to be pretty big differences in how compounds behave in these different cell lines. Um, and then once we know that, we carry out more specific dose curves to really quantify how well these drugs are working. And then from there, we go on to characterize how are the drugs working. Um, we do things to assess different aspects of the virus's life cycle and to make sure it's truly stopping infectious virus particles from being produced. And then do you collaborate to look at the ability of these compounds to work in vivo? That's still a bit up in the air. And I should say, I completely failed to mention this, we were only able to do this with the help of amazing collaborators. Um, without Mike Diamond and Sean Whelan um, at WashU, we wouldn't have been able to get this off the ground nearly so quickly. And they were incredibly forthcoming with just information about cell lines and sharing virus. And I mean, science, as you well know, is truly a, a collaborative uh, endeavor. So um, in terms of the mouse studies, I, it's still up in the air. Um, we do kind of, in Christina's lab, I personally wouldn't continue that work, but we do have a team of people who are doing a lot of uh, mouse model development for drug testing in general. Uh, whether we'd collaborate with someone for the, the COVID-2 work or not, I don't think we've decided yet. Is the ultimate goal for a promising compound to get it into clinical trials? Yeah, I think, you know, through, through the work with Fimbrion, um, they've got a lot of experience with working with other companies and licensing. I think either way, um, I think probably the most efficient way when you really start to get into the nitty gritty of drug development is probably to license it. Um, but absolutely, no matter what, the dream would be to have something that worked well enough to even have that question come up. On a more personal level, how has the COVID-19 pandemic affected you? Um, certainly my daily life has changed a lot. Uh, my husband is normally at work every day from, you know, seven to five, and he is here all day on the computer at home. Um, and I say here, I actually, I, I'm at home right now having this conversation with you because I try to take meetings at home, but I've mostly been in the lab um, for the entire time. So kind of watching how things have evolved at work from, you know, late March, early April until now as people have started to come back has been really interesting. Otherwise, you know, I just, I, I miss the normal stuff that everybody misses. I miss live music. I miss being able to go out to restaurants. But, you know, finding new ways to reconnect with old friends has been wonderful. You know, with the academic career path, you have friends all over the place. Um, and most of my closest friends aren't here in St. Louis. So doing things like playing games over Zoom with them is something brand new that has kind of rekindled a lot of connections. And I think that's awesome. To follow up on that, what do you do in your free time during the COVID-19 pandemic? Any new hobbies? So definitely resting has become more of a hobby of mine. <laughs> but otherwise, um, playing games. Um, I'm ordinarily a really big runner, um, and I had been running a lot. 
And I've kind of come off of that um, more due to pregnancy than due to COVID, but I've been swimming more. So uh, just the two things, COVID and pregnancy, have <laughs> coincided for me, so I can't really tease apart what's what. But reading, uh, games, and swimming, I would say, are my main hobbies that I've been participating in. As a virologist, how do you make decisions about how to keep yourself, your family, your coworkers, and your community safe? Yeah, it is constant risk assessment. Um, and it's interesting because pregnancy is constant risk assessment too. Um, and I am really, really careful and mindful about it. And I encourage my fam family members to be as well. Generally, I don't incorporate anything new into my life until I have a really good understanding of what the protocol is. Um, like what is the process that whatever place the Y is using for swimming. Um, and if it seems like there's minimal contact with anyone and cleaning is done really well and everybody is taking precautions really seriously, then I will decide that risk has been mitigated, you know, sufficiently that it's worth the benefit to my mental health or what have you. Um, but I, I think it requires really, really careful thought and reflection. And for the people that you have in your life, it's really got to be a team thing where you all agree on what, what your boundaries are with that. As a virologist, I feel that I am an ambassador for talking about COVID risk with my family and friends. How do you deal with this? Absolutely. I, I think we're absolutely ambassadors for this. And I think a lot of people turn to us as sort of an authority. Um, and, you know, even though we understand the virology a lot better, we also can't see the future and there's a lot we don't know. But um, I just I try to encourage caution more than anything. and. I remind people that no matter how bad it feels like it is or how much you're missing out on things, it is so much better than the alternative or than exposing yourself and then exposing people unknowingly. Um, you know, my parents are in their 70s and they live halfway across the country and I've just encouraged them to be incredibly cautious um, at one point when they thought perhaps they had been exposed, encouraging them to cancel even doctor's appointments that they had. And, um, but it's, it's a hard conversation to have. It's not comfortable. There's other family members that we have where this has been difficult. Um, it's really unfortunate it's been turned political. I hate that. Really, I think we just need to be thinking about protecting each other and taking care of each other and viewing it from that perspective and not viewing it as, what is someone else trying to make me do? What are your thoughts about childcare? You will be having a baby soon. What are your plans? Yeah, no, this is this is a really tough question. Um, and, you know, parents all over the world are, are dealing with it. Um, and I don't have a straightforward answer. I will take maternity leave. Um, but what will happen when I'm ready to go back to work? I'm unsure. We've talked through options of um, daycares and have applications in places. But that's really going to be pending what COVID looks like, seeing what these facilities are doing and how they've handled it. Um, we've talked about potentially having, you know, a nanny or something come in and help us, but then that's still another person you're bringing into your household and you're exposing. Um, there are no good, simple black and white answers, unfortunately. It's just more risk assessment, and I think case by case. You know, every daycare, every situation, every set of personal needs is different. Um, and as we get closer, we're going to have to think really carefully about it. And, you know, I think about, will my mother be able to come out and be with me? Will we, will we be able to be around any family with a newborn? Um, and that's daunting. And it makes, me, it makes me sad, but we will exercise as much caution as we have to to feel that we're being safe. So we're beginning to wrap up our podcast. Any last messages for our listeners? Any thoughts about the future of the COVID-19 pandemic? 
my biggest hope is that we get a vaccine soon. Um, it's a long drawn out process, so I'm not overly optimistic it'll be too soon. And secondary to that, my hope is that people will get the vaccine. So I, I would say that's my biggest message. If we get to the point that we have a vaccine that's available to us, it will have gone through a lot of safety and efficacy testing. Please, please get the vaccine. And it's not just for yourself. I mean, it helps everybody. This is how herd health works. Um, and, you know, I, I think keeping everything in perspective about what we're able to control and what we're not able to control and what we're missing out on is just important for our, for our sanity. And we're all in the same boat with that. Thank you, Annie, for speaking with us today. Annie's previous work as a microbiologist designing cell-based screens for drug testing allowed her to pivot quickly to test for new antiviral compounds against SARS-CoV-2, some of which may ultimately lead to new drugs to prevent or treat COVID-19 disease. This has been Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about people who study viruses. This is your host, Larissa Thackeray, and thanks for listening. You can find us on Google and Apple Podcasts or at lmtv.podbean.com. If you are a virologist interested in sharing who you are and what you do, please contact us at letusmeetthevirologists at gmail.com.